0: Thank you, Darla. Honestly, Kyle, and Sam, yes, the piano is amazing, Sam. Honestly, Kyle, I mean, if you listen to the words of the songs, I mean, the sermon was preached. Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, Let me me pray for you. Father, uh, just lift up Kyle as he prepares to bring your word. I just pray that his words are an encouragement to us and and as we listen, we we search for ways to apply it to our lives. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. As always, it's good to be here with everyone, and I hope that all of you had a good week. And I'm excited for us to be here together as we continue to go through the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And you know, uh, there's different things as you go through life that kind of triggers memories for you. There's... Smells. You may walk into a house and smell a pumpkin pie and think of holidays with grandma or drive by a location and you think about a first date that you had with your wife or your husband. There's all sorts of things that can trigger memories for us. One of them can be the weather. I know when I lived in Arkansas and it would snow on rare occasions, it would make me think of being back home. And uh, this time of year in the early spring, whenever everything's starting to turn nice, makes me think about being back in college and working at the boat dock down in Arkansas. And uh, working at a boat dock in Arkansas was quite an experience, as you could imagine. But in the early spring, we would go down there. And because it wasn't busy, we would be doing all sorts of odd jobs repairing boats and getting slips ready and checking cables and chains and so on. And one of the jobs that our boss would have us do would be If it was slow, he would send us out to the grill outside of the office to make hamburgers and a grill of hot dogs. And there was a guy that worked at the dock with us named Levi. Levi was huge, and I don't remember if he was from Scotland or what, but he was a big, big guy. And he went out there one day because it was his turn to grill, and he turned the propane on, and he walked away for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I came walking out, and I smelled it, and I said, Levi, you need to shut that off. And, uh, well, no, it'll be okay, man. All right. So (laughs) I go walking down the dock and he's behind me. And all of a sudden I hear this boom and the dock glows orange and I hear this screech and I turn around and all I saw was a fireball with an arm and a spatula hanging out of it. And Levi's flying backwards and we go help him up. And, uh, you know, in that moment, Levi was told truth and he did not listen to it. And because of that, there was a consequence. He was in pain, he was embarrassed, and he lost his eyebrows. So, <laughs> so coming off of that lighthearted story of a man being engulfed by flames, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 8, and keep in mind kind of what we were talking about there, truth being spoken but not being accepted by those who are hearing. John chapter 8, And we're going to be reading verses 28 through 41. John chapter 8, verses 28 through 41. Verse 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he spoke these and as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Now, we begin with verse 28, which is the verse that we left off with last week when we talked about how Christ is teaching more and more of his death and resurrection. We see him state in this verse that when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am. Now, many of your Bibles will say that Then you will know that I am he and he will either be italicized or bracketed. And that is because in the original text, he is not there. It is something that was added for English. But what he is saying in that moment is that when you lift me up, then you will know that I am. It is a declaration to the people of who he is and what is happening in that moment. His teaching is pointing to the cross. And we talked last week about how this is snowballing the closer we get to chapter 19. He states in chapter 3 that the Son of Man must be lifted up like the Serpent of Moses. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And then now in 828, he states that when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know I am. But now in this section of Scripture, we see two new words come into the phrase that will begin to be built upon truth and free. The truth will make you free. Now notice that in that sentence there are several things going on. The truth will make you free. Truth free. It's in that order. It's not freedom showing you truth. It is truth making you free and they are connected. They are not separate. Jesus is not saying that you should hope for truth and then you should also hope for freedom. He is not saying that, nor has he reversed it. It is not that freedom will reveal the truth. Freedom, revealing truth, that being reversed is often a lie used by Satan to convince us and to convince the world that we need not Christ. We can exist within our own selves and embrace our natural desires. Free yourself from religion and you will see truth. Satan has always attacked the words of God, the words of Christ, and twisted them and worked on the minds and the hearts of believers by making them doubt. In these. We see in Genesis 3, 1, in the garden, Satan is talking to Eden, and he states that, Did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Sowing the seeds of doubt for an order that came from God. Any type of sin that we struggle with as a believer, Satan can always give us a way to explain away. She doesn't know. You're not hurting anyone. No one will ever see the history of your phone. And whatever it is, he can always give us a way to explain this away and to go against the commands of God. And we see people take this quote, the truth will set you free, and they almost use it in a, ba- a blasphemous form. Or they use it in movies or in different novels or whatever to, to almost make us dull to the meaning behind them. The truth will set you free. And people say that this is, <clears throat> this is stating that once you see that religion is false, then you will be free. These words have been used and attacked by Satan almost more than any from Christ especially in our modern society. And do you know why? It's because there are power in the words of Christ and in his teaching and in faith in him and in the cross. But what is happening right now is the logos is speaking logos. This is the logos of the logos. Remember, in verse 31, he states to abide in my word. And the word in that verse is logos. And that's the same word that comes from John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we stated that the word in those first verses is logos. And the definition of it is the word of God or principle of divine reason and creative order. Identified in the gospel of John as the second person of the Trinity incarnate in Jesus Christ, an encompassing idea Ultimate truth, the principle of reason and judgment. And so in this moment, the Logos is speaking Logos. The ultimate truth is speaking ultimate truth. And it is this truth that will set us free. Because the truth of Christ has power. And what is this power that we see here? We see that it has the power to make disciples, and it has the power to set men free from sin. Think back to Genesis 4 and Cain and Abel and how God tells Cain that sin is crouching at your door and it is waiting to pounce on you. And yet in the truth of Christ, there is freedom from sin. And this is why Satan attacks these words so hard and makes us numb to them as a society and as a church. Because in these words, in the truth of Christ, this is how we avoid eternal death. Is by seeking him, we trust in his words, in his sacrifice, and we abide in them. And in this, we are saved. And this has been what Jesus has been wanting them to do and to see over the last few chapters that we've been studying together. He's wanting them to trust his words, to trust what he's been teaching them, the same as he wants us to trust today. And so reflect back on the last few weeks that we've been together. What is it that he's been saying to the people? Accept me as the bread of life. Seek me for the sake of being with me and not for what I can do for you. If we accept his sacrifice of blood for our sins, if we confess as Peter, where else shall we go? If we commit to Christ and not religion, we trust that he is from above. He is from the Father and he has done the father's will then we are believing in the truth that he has spoke of and in that we will be set free and when we hear free a term that is often associated with it is the term freedom the term freedom but as we talked about last week oftentimes the jews the pharisees and us when we read the words of christ we think temporally we think In the way of this world, and Christ is speaking spiritually and eternally. So when I was reading this and I heard the truth shall set you free, I sit and I think to myself, well, if I trust in you and in your truth, why is it that I still sin? Should I not be free from this? And that is sort of the universal knee-jerk reaction that most people have whenever they hear this verse. But remember that Christ is speaking spiritually and eternally. And there's multiple ways to approach this, especially as a believer. One is to remember that as you progress forward into time and into a more intimate relationship with him, there are changes in your life occurring and people see them. Now, we as sinners, we may think to ourselves, I've been struggling with this sin since I was a kid, and I still cannot seem to overcome it. And John MacArthur tells this story about how he was at the bedside of this 79-year-old man, and the man was ready to go see Jesus, and they were talking, and John asked him, do you have any regrets in your life? And this 79-year-old man said, I regret that I never got the victory over pornography. And John said, I looked at him, and I could not believe that this man struggled with this for all of his life. And yet, even though these struggles may still be with us, people see a change in your life, a change that can only come from a divine relationship with Christ. They notice that when you get stressed, you go for a walk in the woods, or you go by yourself and pray, you don't go to the liquor store anymore, they don't see you there anymore. They notice that if there's constructive criticism or they have a difficult conversation to have with you, they can have it with you and you don't get mad and explode on them. It's not an immediate argument. There is a peace about you now. And yes, you may still struggle with that anger, but because you focus on Christ, it is something that is coming under control because focusing on Christ and on his truth and abiding in his word, it allows us to. Exists in a plane that is beyond sin, if you will. We are in this world, but not of this world. When we focus on him, when we have difficulties, he is our first response. And therefore, it frees us from sin. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Satan will try and try to convince us that following Christ is slavery and not freedom. He will try to tell us to think about the rules that we have to follow. Think about the laws. Think about all the things that are a natural part of you that are a sin. And if you could just be free from this, then you would be allowed to act as you want and do as you please. But as we stated earlier, that is thinking temporally. Christ is speaking eternally. And in Romans, this idea is built upon even more in 623, when we read that for the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is the truth. And as we said earlier in John 3:14 and 15, Jesus states that and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him, implying that those who do not will have eternal death and will go through the separation that Dwayne told us about a few weeks ago. And this is the truth that Christ has been telling them. Faith in his words, faith in the logos being spoken of, faith in his sacrifice, this is what will save. Now notice also that he tells them to... Abide in my word, abide in this truth that I'm speaking. And in this verse, abide means to abide, obviously, or stay or wait. Stay and wait in my logos and you will be freed. You will see the things come to pass as being true and you will see who I am. But time and time again over these last few weeks, we've seen that the people can simply not do this. They cannot trust in Him. They cannot abide in Him. They cannot listen to Him. In chapter 6, they leave when He teaches them to spiritually accept His death and His sacrifice. At the end of the chapter, many of His disciples go away from Him. And in chapter 7, verse 44, you see that at the tail end of His teaching, it states that some of the people who were present in this moment wanted to seize Him. And in chapter 8, if you continue on reading, if you look at verse 59, you'll see that even the people Christ is talking to in this moment, telling them that the truth will set them free, even they get to a point to where it states that they picked up stones to throw at him. It intensified even more to the point to where the people present were wanting to kill him. They wouldn't listen to him and they wouldn't trust him. People walked away over and over again, and it's because his teachings were getting more and more difficult. The more his teachings were pointing to him, and the more his teachings were pointing to the cross and the resurrection and a relationship with him, the more people walked away. And we talked about the parable of the sower a week or two ago, how some seeds fell in rocky places and some among thorns. And this is in Matthew 13. And Christ goes on to explain that the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And so we continually see these people that either because of a work or because of a teaching or for different reasons, because they're at the temple at the time they come and they believe in him and then things get trying or things get heavy and they fade away just as Jesus says will happen in the example. And there are a few things in this moment playing in the background. And I usually like to look at a situation and see if there's a deeper way to understand what is happening, if there's more meaning in the words of Christ than we can see at surface level. Now, seemingly, there's nothing more going on than Christ talking to some people, but there is. Perhaps this is nothing. Perhaps this explains everything. I'll let you decide. First off, in this moment when Christ is talking to these people, ask yourself, where is he? Where is this happening at? And if you look at the beginning of chapter 8 and verse 2, you will see that in this moment Christ is at the temple. He is talking to them. But more specifically, it's not just that he's at the temple. Look at verse 20 in chapter 8. It states that he is at the treasury. He is at the treasury of the temple. Depending upon your translation, it will say in the treasury, by the treasury, or near the place where the offerings were put. Either way, he has returned to the temple and he is at the source of the sin. Greed. In chapter 2, Christ comes and he cleanses the temple. And we stated that they were selling sacrifices and so on out in the court of the Gentiles. And they were taking away from the meaning of the temple. They were distracting from worship. So Christ goes in and he runs the money changers out. He flips tables and he clears it out. And so now he returns and he is standing at the treasury and they are still not listening. And he is telling the priests in the temple that if they love the father and not riches, the people, not manna, not tradition, not that which fills the treasury but you loved the father the reason for the temple then you would love me and you would recognize me and that is why he continues to say that he is from the father and it continues to be a problem for them he is standing at the source of the distraction and they are not listening we will see as we get into Palm Sunday here in four weeks that Christ will return And he will cleanse the temple because they were not listening. Now, when you read through the commentaries of Ellicott and Matthew Henry, they both kind of have the same ideas when they're reading these verses. And they make points that are interesting, and that is that in all things that Christ does, he is constantly in the will of the Father in all things. When he states, I am, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the I am statements, he is in the will of the Father. When he heals the blind and heals the sick, he is in the will of the Father. When he taught those that did not understand and showed people who he was, he is in the will of the Father. And even in this moment, when he stands in the city of David among God's people, the Jews, in the temple of the Father, speaking to the people, the Pharisees, and the priests of the Father, drawing all attention to himself, that too is the will of the Father. So there is a lot going on in this moment. But secondly, we look at the location of the temple, or maybe the history of the location, we should say. And if you if you ever like looking into Jewish traditions and the way it ties into the Bible, if you go to jewishvirtuallibrary.org, they have many great articles there. And if you look up the Temple Mount, you will see traditions... As to why the temple was built where it was in this time. There are several traditions and they all vary. Some say that that is the place where God created the world. And there was a foundation stone. And the Holy of Holies. And that was where he created Adam. And all these different things that no one can really agree on. But there is one that everyone agrees on. All sects of Judaism agree on this tradition. It was built where Abraham built an altar to sacrifice Isaac to God, and God provided a ram to take his place. And so here we are, and the people of Abraham are standing here, where Abraham's altar was, and now Abraham does not know the Father. As Christ has told them repeatedly, they are sitting there, and the sacrifice to take their place is standing in front of them, and they are missing it. And they say over and over, They are of Abraham, but the truth of the father is being spoken to them and they are repeatedly deaf to it. Abraham was in tune with the father. And when the ram was sent, Abraham knew that it was there. But now Abraham has gotten distracted from the father and the Messiah is there and they see it not because they cannot hear the truth. And Christ is warning them more and more intensely. When you look earlier in chapter eight at verse twenty one, Christ states that, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now the whole time, all the time before this, when Christ is stating that he's going away, he says that, I am going away, and where I go, you cannot come. I am going, and you cannot come. He says this, but this time, he adds in the middle of the fact that he is going away, and you cannot come, that you will die in your sin. And yet they are still not heeding the truth of his words. But if they had heeded the truth, they would have been set free from death and free from the clutches of sin as we are today. And ask yourself, are you willing to let go of the things of this world and allow the truth to free you from sin? Or rather, to make you free. Some of your translations may state that the truth will set you free, but the original says make. Truth makes you free. The truth makes you free. And there is something in this statement, isn't there? The truth makes us free. There is a divine power. The truth is coming from Christ. Christ's truth has power. It has the power to make us disciples and followers of him, and it has the power to free us from death and damnation. Now, again, ask yourself, if you are willing to let go of the things of this world and allow the truth to free you from sin, or, like so many, will you only be with him until the winds of change blow or the heat of persecution comes and then fade away as so many did and so many have. In conclusion, I'd like to end by telling you all of this. This is kind of something neat that I came across while I was reading this, in an elders meeting a while ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, we were talking and someone said that, well, we will not be to John 19 by the time Easter rolls around. And uh, seeing that that's five weeks away and we're in eight, whoever said that is right and we're not going to be there. But uh Palm Sunday being four Sundays away and Easter being five, yet think about... What we have all learned together. Think about what we've learned to look at and looked at. We have learned to seek Him for who He is and for a relationship with Him, not for what He can do with us. We read that He is the bread of life and that He gives life and sustains life. We learned that you can hear His words and see His works, but that doesn't make you a believer. Being religious doesn't make you a believer. That hell is being separated from him and desiring to seek him and not being able to. That we must accept the sacrifice of flesh and blood that he makes on our behalf. That his name is known by men all over the world, but it's what we do with faith in his death and resurrection that saves us. We have seen many walk away because they could not accept, and others such as Peter state, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And now today, if we trust in his words, that he is all of these things, the one from the Father to take away our sins, then he <clears throat> then we shall be set free from sin and pass from this life to the next to be with him. And if that is not the story of Easter, then what is? And there is no way that the four of us could have planned it to work out like that. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for the truth in your word that you invite us to abide in it, Lord. I pray that you continue to guide us as we move forward as a church body, as leaders, I pray that you put us on each other's hearts and that we pray for each other throughout the week. And I pray that you continue to guide us, to teach us in your word, and allow us to have moments alone with you in prayer. Feel your love, Lord. We praise your name. Amen.